Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Fellow considerates, my name is Hector Santia Stebot and I'm the producer for Reconsider. Eric is actually out on a well-deserved and much-needed honeymoon, and since he'll be out for a number of weeks, we're going to be highlighting some popular and highly relevant episodes from the Reconsider archive. But before we get to that, I have a huge ask to make. Eric does this show out of the kindness of his heart, and he's invested countless hours of his time and also poured his own money into the show. So if you've gained any value, perspective, or even hope from any of the episodes, shoot him an email at eric at reconsidermedia.com and let him know. And if you're interested in getting more involved with the Reconsider community and you want to help sustain the show, you can also go to patreon.com slash reconsider, and there's some cool perks and great ways to get involved. But that's enough for me. Let's get into today's episode. So we're very excited to have today's guest on for our second part in our four-part series on Russia. Uh, today we're welcoming Mark Schaus to tell us all about the history of Russia and how it got into the geopolitical position that it's in today. Mark attended Queens College in New York. He studied Russian history and economics there and got his doctorate in business. Um, Russian history has been a huge passion of his, and he is the host of the Russian Rulers History podcast, which you can find at RussianRulersHistory.com. It's a podcast that's been going for a very, very long time. It's incredibly well-researched, and if you want to know more about Russian history and really understand how their past has brought them to their present, Mark is the authority on it. I highly encourage you to go check out his podcast. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so the Russian Rulers History podcast has an interesting premise. It starts from basically the beginning of the modern Russian state and goes from leader to leader to leader. But now you're doing an interesting thing, Mark. You're kind of going back through a lot of the, well, basically from the beginning and revisiting a lot of the leaders, right? So what was, what was your impetus for starting the show and what are you, what are you doing with it now? Well, I, I always loved Russian history. Uh, you know, my mother's side of my family was Russian. Many of them came over. They were part of the Tsarist regime, and my great-great-grandparents were admirals in the Imperial Navy. And I just heard so many stories from the relatives and all the expatriates who came to the United States. And, and I took Russian history in a, a, at Queens College, and one of the most popular professors in the whole school was Dr. Paul Average. And he just had a remarkable way of teaching the subject. And then I said, you know, I really want to be a Russian history professor. And he said, Mark, you don't speak Russian well enough. 
you're never going to teach Russian history. And I wish he was alive today because I've taught more people Russian history, I think, than any other single person has through the power of the podcasts. Uh, it's just been a passion. It's just such a remarkable history and very much misunderstood. Uh, a lot of people view Russian history through the eyes of the Western world, not understanding it's a very different history than any of the ones we've had. One of the things I'm excited about having Mark on about is that when we were setting up the show, what I was thinking about was, okay, Napoleon, World War One, World War II, let's understand what events have shaped Russia, got it to where it is today, and inform its mindset about how it views the West and the rest of the world. One of the things Mark said as we were setting up was, Eric, to understand Russia, you have to go way, way before Napoleon. It's something I know very, very little bit about. So I'm really curious to hear about it. So, Mark, what would you say is our launching point for understanding Russia with respect to the rest of the world? Well, I think it's the first invasion that they had back in the 900s or eight, late 800s. It's from the Vikings. They were known as the Varangians. <clears throat> the common uh, thread in most histories is that the Varangians were asked to come and invade Russia. At the time, it was just a group of people. They said they were lawless, and they needed somebody to take care of them. Uh, this comes from the Primary Chronicles, which is really the only history we have at the time. But to be very honest, that sounds uh, a little glossed over. These people, the Vikings were known for raiders. As raiders, they would come into countries. They did in uh, Great Britain and all over the, uh, the north, uh, even into France. But in Russia, they invaded, and they said, you know, this is a pretty good place here. We're going to stay. We're going to take over. So that was the first invasion, really, of the land at the time known as the Rus, the people. The second one comes in around 1240 when the final uh, invasion came from the Mongols from the east. Now, since we're trying to think about this western wall that Russia has and their fear of invasion from the west, this eastern invasion had more to do with what Russia is than almost any other single event. Because what they did is they built a wall on the west. Before, Kievian Rus, and Kiev was the main city, Kiev itself was bigger than Paris in the 1100s. It was an enormous city, a trade route for all of Europe. I mean, they were just ingrained with the European monarchs, uh, Yaroslav the Wise, had a number of sons and daughters who were marrying into like houses of Hungary, England, France. So there was a lot of interaction. But when the Mongols came, that wall came down. And it's not a physical one. It was more of a cultural one and a military wall that shut us, the Russians, away from the rest of Europe. So we missed the Enlightenment, missed the Renaissance, missed so much of went on from about 1240 until about the time of Peter the Great in 1700. Very little contact between the two, so there was a change. And then the perspective of the West toward Russia was no longer a European country, but now an Oriental one. So there was a very different way of looking at them, and the Western Europeans looked down on the Russians. And I think this is a thread that goes throughout history. The Russians feel like everybody's looking down on them. And it started with the Mongol invasion. And then after the Mongols were finally taken care of after about 400 years, 
we have the invasion by the Swedes, led by Charles XII, around the 1700s. And he was the first one to come from the West to go in and start penetrating into the country to try to attack and destroy the Russian army. And he was a warrior king, kept on beating the Russians. And Peter the Great came up with the idea, hey, if you're going to come into my country, I'm going to make sure you can't live off the land. I'm going to burn every single crop, every single house, scorched earth tactics. And so we have this third invasion, major invasion. There were other smaller ones, like the Teutonic Knights came in. They tried to invade. Uh, we also have the Turks from the south would raid constantly up there. You can call them invasions or call them raids, but the Ottoman Empire coming up through the south, they would enslave people. They would just capture the Russians, bring them back to Constantinople and Istanbul, and sell them on the slave market. And they estimate well over 2 million Russians were captured and enslaved that way. So the Russians have had this constantly. And then you have the Lithuanians and the Poles who were on their western border. They came in numerous times. Uh, one was uh, during an era called the Times of Trouble when the last of the Viking Rurikid dynasty died after Ivan the Terrible's son Fyodor died. Then there was no more of the old guard. And then the Romanovs took over in the 16. 1613. In that little period of time, you had a Polish army invade. Uh, they had one uh, Polish prince, or uh, you might call him a prince, or just a commoner, but uh, he claimed to be the, the true czar of Russia. Well, when they discovered that he really wasn't even Russian, and he had married a Catholic, uh, they cremated him, stuffed him into a cannon, and shot him in the direction of Poland. <laughs> I... I imagine that I, I, I had this quiet chuckle uh, when you said that these were the times of trouble, because from what I know of Russia from the 1800s through the 20th century, it's got to be pretty bad if the Russians look back on this part of history and call it the times of trouble. It was a bad time. I mean, they, they actually thought that the country would dissolve, that the Poles, the Lithuanians would come in and take over, the Turks would come from the south. And it was a very tenuous time for Russia. It would likely have collapsed had all the armies decided from the different countries to come in. It would have just tore the country apart. And then you have, you know, the people came up, they rose up, they fought, and then they picked a young boy named Michael Romanov to become czar. Actuality, it was his father who kind of ruled the country because Michael was very simple young man, uh, not of great intellect or anything, but it started the dynasty that would last throughout. But also in the time of troubles, there was a great deal of famine in that era. It was one of the worst times. But when you do look at Russian history, there are a lot of times of troubles. Uh, I mean, they've had so many famines that it's hard to even count them. If there's something that seems to unite the Russian people in times of great hardships is they seem to have this ability throughout history to constantly come together when things get really, really, really hard and push to at least do something. It doesn't always solve the problem in the best possible way, but they can usually get past these moments. I mean, if we're talking about today sort of this idea of Russian geopolitics, you kind of can't get into geopolitics of Russia before you understand the Russian mindset, and you can't really understand the Russian mindset as you mentioned, until you understand these invasions. And it's difficult to understand the invasions until you understand the geography. So 
when a lot of people talk about, you know, the, quote, three great invasions, and like you said, they're missing a lot of prior history when they do that. They're talking about the invasion of Sweden, where, you know, you had the Battle of Poltava that was really defining in Russian history. 75,000 people participated. Uh, I mean, these these were massive battles. Then with Napoleon, you had Borodino and 250,000. And then, of course, when you get into World War One and World War Two, you have some of the largest battles ever seen in history. So how, how is it that geography impacts the ability for Russia to be invaded so frequently? And how does that influence the way that the Russian people think that perhaps we're missing in the West? Well, when you look at the geography, and I actually did a podcast when I was done with all the Russian rulers, I went into the geography because it's so important. From the West, you have open fields. You don't have a lot of natural barriers aside from rivers. Uh, it's easy to invade Russia. It's very difficult to stay there. So when you look at the geography, you come in, remember, this is a very northern country. Uh, this is far further north than, say, the border of Canada, much of it. But as you come through, you don't have any barriers. If you've got a bridge, you can get to the next part of the Russian land. But you have one obstacle, the biggest one of all, which is their weather. And it gets cold. I mean, it gets a lot of snow. It gets very cold up there. And if you're not prepared for it, as the Napoleon wasn't, the Germans weren't, the Swedes weren't, but the only ones who were really prepared for this kind of weather was the, the Mongols, and even they were stopped. Uh, there's a city way up north called Novgorod. They tried to invade Novgorod, but the land there was so bad. In the spring, it was all muddy. In the winter, it was all icy. They just couldn't get their horses up there. So they didn't invade that city, and it was saved from that. But they were still you know, under threat. But it just is so easy to come in there and sweep through. It's just the problem is it's a lot of land. And Russia, as we know, is the largest land you know, country in the world. Uh, they didn't have cars and planes until World War II. They were marching through there on foot and on horse. And that's hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of miles of trying to penetrate into this country. And as I said with the Swedes, they just said, if you're invading us, we're going to make sure you can't live off the land. And to say that living off the land was hard enough for the Russian people who lived there, it was even harder for the invaders to get through. It reminds me of this quote by a comedian that I really like named Eddie Izzard in Dress to Kill. And at some point he says, Hitler never played Risk as a kid. You know, that <laughs> landmass Eurasia, if you can hold it, you get, if you can take it, you've got seven little dudes coming up every turn, but you just can't hold on to it. It's not going to happen. And it just sounds like such a, it's such a probably even more apt analogy for trying to take and hold Russia than he even knew. And I guess the, the question I have is with this, the scorched earth policies that, Peter the Great started, I mean, obviously that becomes a common tactic used down the line by other Russian leaders. What was the effect that this had on the population? I mean, I think today, obviously the idea of burning our own, one's own country in order to stop invaders, 
uh, and and bringing about obviously some level of human suffering to one's own citizens is almost unthinkable. But it seems like a, a pretty common Russian thing. But what was? Do you know what was really going on for the day to day person in Russia when this was happening? Oh, they they were devastated. They suffered so greatly when there was a lot of dislike for Peter for what he did, and you know he had to. I mean, otherwise the kind Charles would have destroyed their armies and would have taken over uh, with Napoleon when he came through. The people were forced to just burn their live, you know, kill their livestock, burn everything. They suffered. They couldn't eat. Uh, they went through a lot of hardships, and they were angry. Uh, Alexander the First, when he was doing the scorched earth tactic, his own family was on him. His mother, who was the uh, wife of his murdered father, Paul, uh, reminded him, you know, by the way, look what happened to your father when he did things that were unpopular. And look what happened to your grandfather, Peter III, who was assassinated in, when Catherine the uh, Great took over. And he very well knew that. But he also knew that the only way that he was going to stop this advancing force of 600,000 men, which is what Napoleon had when he crossed the Neiman River, there was uh, no other choice. And then when he had to burn Moscow, that was even more devastating. And it wasn't just the peasants that suffered. The nobility did, too, because many of them had estates in the path of the Napoleon invasion and the serfs that were there, their slaves. And that was all just wrecked. They had all their things destroyed. Moscow, so many of them had their homes and all their their artwork and everything destroyed. So it hit all layers of Russian society. It's almost as if Russia's greatest ge uh, geographical weakness, which is this vast set of open plains that allows for these invasions to happen, also becomes its strength in defending itself in terms of its size and its weather and its location. Because ultimately, it's usually not the, the degree of organization and strength of its military uh, you know, forces at the time that pushes back any invaders. It's just a, its ability to pull back and, in a way, force its citizens to endure more suffering than they might have anyways from the invading forces. But, you know, if we look at these invasions one after the other, how... How how was the Napoleonic invasions, for example, different than that of Sweden in the Great Northern War? And, and how did that impact sort of the 19th century balance that was set up after the Napoleonic Wars ended? Well, the other invasions, aside from the Mongols, was, were done in small, kind of precise invasions. The Swedes came in with a middle-sized army. It wasn't enormous like Napoleon's was. It was just really trying to get in there and... You know, but Peter, you know, stood and fought at Poltava, where they finally turned the tide, and then Charles was forced to go down to the Ottoman Empire and the Turks for to be saved. The Napoleonic one, he came in full bore, and what I like to think of it is the old Muhammad Ali rope-a-dope kind of uh, defense when he fought George Foreman in Zaire. He took a lot of beating and wore him down and then came back and countered. And the thing is, the Russians had some phenomenal generals in their army, so they may not have had the best weaponry, and they may not have been as advanced, but they had some brilliant uh, generals, one of whom was Suvorov, who was one of the few people to ever beat Napoleon. 
Suvorov was one of the few generals in world history to have been undefeated in all his battles. Uh, then you had Kutuzov, who took over as the head of the Russian army. And what he did is he kept on, you know, pinging Napoleon and just kept fighting and not getting into a pitched battle, except for Borodino, which was essentially a draw. But they kept on fighting. And then what happened is after they beat Napoleon, where he was in Moscow and he realized there was no way he was going to make it and the winter was coming, they kept on going toward Paris. They kept fighting. They kept going after him. And Kutuzov really wanted to stop and say, hey, listen, we got him out of our country. Let it go. But Alexander I said, no, I'm going to go all the way to Paris. And that may have been one of the things that really started off the Russian Revolution. And the reason for that is the people, the soldiers and the commanders started seeing what Western Europe was like and going, wait a minute. This is a hell of a lot better than what I have in Russia. Like, why can't we have this kind of quality of life? Even the peasants are doing better than many of the uh, nobility. And so it started that little revolutionary soul in Russia where they started seeing that, hey, the czar and the people on top have it really good, but the rest of us, we're not nearly as good as Western Europe. And so there was this jealousy of the rest of Europe that started with an Napoleonic invasion and then the recoil when the Russians went all the way to Paris and started seeing what the rest of Europe was like. I actually have a an ongoing question about the Napoleonic War before the counterattack. My best history or my most thorough reading of the history of the Napoleonic War actually came from War and Peace, which I finished recently and I absolutely loved. But I get the feeling that Tolstoy had his own agenda to push or his own bone to pick. You know, a lot of what he... There are two parts of what he said that I've always been curious about. He talks about Russia's initial alliance with France and how bonkers that seemed. And he didn't seem to give a satisfying, at least rational explanation to me about why Alexander chose to ally with Napoleon initially. And then the other question I had out of it was Tolstoy at times implied and in times said explicitly that a lot of the burning in the path of the Russians, in particular Moscow, was either accidental or at least unplanned. And Tolstoy's perspective on everything, the, the one of the agendas he wants to push is that individuals have very little influence on the course of history. This stuff is, is driven by sort of laws of human nature that people think that they are directing Napoleon and Alexander thought they were directing, but they really weren't. So he might have biased a little bit towards the accidental nature of a lot of this. What do you think, Mark, was Alexander's motivation for initially allying with Napoleon? And when he changed his mind, uh, particularly when Napoleon invaded, did you? is there evidence that Alexander very directly and deliberately ordered the Scorched Earth policy? Or is it, as Tolstoy says, somewhat of a more somewhat of a more disorganized and sporadic thing. Well, I, I finished War and Peace last summer. <laughs> and so I figured, you know, I'm going to have to read the uh, most incredible piece of Russian literature at some point in my life. But I also know that uh, Tolstoy himself was very prejudiced against the czarist regime. So he always viewed them as being minor players. He did not want to give them very much uh, the kudos for what went on. 
the idea of the French connections, most of the French nobility and most of uh, Russian upper class spoke French. That was their lingua franca was French. I mean, every, they didn't speak very much Russian. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of evidence that a lot of the people in the court of Alexander before the invasions only spoke French and spoke very little Russian. Uh, when we really look at the Russian leadership, uh, by the time of Nicholas II in 1917, he was 97% German and only 3% Russian. Many of them thought that the Russian, they actually looked down at their own people. They looked at, you know, the czars of Russia thought that we're the benevolent father. You're these little children here. We'll take care of you. You know, they did not look very highly on them. And they looked very highly on French culture. Uh, they were very big on Louis the Sixteenth and the Fourteenth, the Sun King. They thought that's what a monarchy should be. And they kind of looked at their own selves and said, we want to be much like the French. So there was an initial connection with them. Napoleon kind of stirred that up. There was a lot of evidence that Alexander was not happy when Napoleon took over. And when they killed the uh, Louis the Sixteenth and the revolution, they thought that was just an abomination. So when Napoleon begins to attack, they start saying, well, you know, do we really want to get involved in this? But Great Britain put a lot of pressure on them because that was one of their major trading partners. A lot of the economy of Russia was based on their trade with Great Britain. But when Napoleon came in and kept on kicking the Russians' butt along with the Austrians and the Prussians, he was forced at the uh, Treaty of Tilsit to say, okay, I'm going to stop trading with Great Britain and, you know, we'll become allied with France again. That didn't work out too well because the economy in Russia started really suffering, and Alexander knew that if he continued to allow this, there was no way that he would stay in power, that somebody would come up and they would kill him like they did his father, like they did his grandfather, and would overthrow him and, you know, go back to the British. So he was in a kind of a quandary. And then Napoleon, you know, said, hey, wait a minute, you're not even following this treaty anymore. That's it. I'm coming in and I'm going to give you a spanking, and there's no way you can stop me. Then with uh, the other ones with the scorched earth, there is direct evidence that some of the generals, like Barclay de Tolly, like Kutuzov, told Alexander, this is the only way we're going to beat these people. We are not going to beat this 600,000-man army. This is one of the best generals of all time. We have to do this. And it wasn't a... Uh, would you call it a accident that they did this? This was on purpose. There were direct orders. There are letters from Alexander to a number of the different generals to burn everything in their path as they retreated. For Moscow, they wanted to make it inhospitable for him, but I think some of it was accidental. They did empty the prisons and they let the guys, you know, run wild and run wild they did. So a lot of the burning, I'd say probably more than half was just some prisoners who were just like, you guys put me in these lousy cells for so long, I'm going to take my revenge. And they did burn things. And there were some accidents where the, uh, because of the cold weather coming in, that some of Napoleon's men actually caused some of the fires to happen. But as a whole, it was a planned event. Mark, I just want to pause real quick because we're kind of marching into the 19th century now. And I know that you mentioned that you wanted to talk 
and add a good deal of clarity surrounding sort of this pre-Napoleonic period. Do you feel that we've done that, or do you want to? No, I think we've done. Yeah, I think we've done it. Yeah, the the big one I wanted to make sure that everyone understood was how powerful that that Mongol invasion was, and how you know that wall between Russia and Europe was pretty incredible. I mean, they just basically stopped talking to each other. And and that set up all these other invasions and all this other feeling of, you know, distrust from that point on. That's as interesting a uh, starting place as any, because something that seems to persist through to this day is this idea of whenever Russia does kind of turn towards Europe, they have this inferiority complex going on because they just haven't ever really been able to develop the um, the either the industrial base in the modern day or the economic activity, even when they were more dependent on agriculture. And this is still kind of something that's going on today with Putin, is they don't really, in part due to what happened in the 20th century, have the technology available to them that the West did. You know, Reagan kind of spent them some would say, to the end of the Cold War. And this kind of persists in the mindset somewhat, I would say. Do you agree? Do you think this is something that influences how Russia has tended to look at the West and continues to today? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, another one is their geography plays into this as well, why they couldn't do this. You know, England talks about how they had such a great industrial revolution, but part of it is because they could build railroads. And they had a small country, so you could build a rail line that could pretty much connect the entire country. Try doing that in Russia. You know, that's a lot of ground to cover. So they have more resources, natural resources like oil and minerals than any other place on Earth. But it's getting it from way out there to way in here that makes it difficult for them to utilize it. Because the expense of the transport is so great that even though they have it, they can't get it there to where it's necessary. That have really affected Russia and the way they feel. You know, they know they have it. They know they, in deep in their hearts, they've got an incredible country with such amazing resources. But it's getting it to where they need it on the West. That's almost impossible. So it really changes their mindset. And, you know, they look at the Americans, they look at the British, and they go, you guys were lucky. You don't know how hard it is to live here. And to do what we do. And so there's a, a kind of a jealousy and animosity about that. So Russia went west. As Tolstoy called it, the mass movement of people from west to east changed and became a mass movement of people from east to west. Napoleon was defeated eventually twice. And then Russia, totally devastated by this war, started looking to Europe and saying, we need to start managing Europe to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Alexander managed to stay in power. Uh, he formed the Triple Alliance. To what extent was Alexander and his successors able to balance the European powers, obviously the big ones being the United Kingdom, France, Germany, and still Austria against each other? How did it set up alliances to protect itself? And how did it deal with the Ottomans to make sure that its vulnerable borders weren't being constantly invaded again? Well, what Alexander did, and to an even greater extent Nicholas I did, his brother was to become the policeman, so to say, of Europe. They wanted to bolster up all the monarchies. They were very much against any revolutionary uh, 
processes going on within Europe. And any time that there was any uprising, they would send Russian troops in. And this started creating a lot of animosity with the people of Europe, saying, hey, you know, this is our country. We'll take care of things on our own. But Nicholas and Alexander were like, well, we're monarchies. We want to keep the others, you know, in their place and keep tradition going and not allow it. And then over time, the other monarchies were like, could you stop doing this? Could, you know, this is our country. To extent this happens here in the United States, that some other countries are going, uh, you don't have to keep invading us to tell us what to do. You know, why don't you stay on your side of the world? That was the feeling that started bubbling up within Europe. And even though they had these alliances and there were trades, the countries like the UK, France, Austria, Austria kind of had this standoff, just leave us alone and don't, don't come down here because they were right on the border of Russia, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. But the UK had their place in, you know, they were starting to really expand. They were at their zenith in the mid-1800s. They had places in India. They were starting to get worried that the Russians would start coming in there because they were expanding. Uh, the Ottoman Empire was collapsing. The UK was very concerned about the Russians coming in and taking over. And, and there was a lot of talk by Nicholas and Alexander of marching all the way to Constantinople to take over that seat of the Orthodox Church. And this is a very big thing in Russia. The Orthodox Church is the most important institution in the country and is to this day. So they were looking at that. And they were building up this kind of fear of the Russian bear. And if you look at cartoons of the time, and the London Times and things like that, they would always you know, point out this belligerent bear to the east and saying, look at these guys, they're just coming in, uh, we have to protect ourselves. And that culminated in the Crimean War in the 1850s, where they were just in there, they were starting to take over all lands of uh, the Ottomans and expanding into the Black Sea and the British and the French said that's enough. And then there were some battles down in the Holy Land in, in Jerusalem, whereas who would be in control of the Holy Christian sites, the Catholics or the Orthodox? And there was there was a, uh, which you might call a riot or a brawl, which was a lot of the priests from both the Catholics and the, uh, the Russian Orthodox who got into a big fight and knives were pulled, guns were pulled. These are priests shooting at each other, stabbing each other. So there was a lot of built up anger. And then the Crimean War comes along and we have, you know, a devastation of that area. Russia has a particular feeling for Crimea because when the Golden Horde of the Mongols started to disintegrate, they broke down into little pockets. You have the Kazan Khanate, which was uh, taken over by Ivan the Terrible. You have the Crimeans, you have Astrakhan, you had other areas there where these hordes of what they call the Tatars would come and they were the ones who were raiding and invading Russia. So when they finally got Crimea, that was Russian territory. That was their place. They fought very hard. And then you have the Crimean War where tens of thousands of Russian soldiers bravely fought to protect their land, which was Russian land. So it's deeply ingrained into the Russian psyche that Crimea is theirs and not anybody else's. They fought hard for it. And the biggest problem that we have, why they lost the Crimean War, was because Nicholas I 
did not continue to build railroads to supply. They had more soldiers. It was right in their backyard. You know, Great Britain's coming in from way out there. France is coming in. Sardinia was one of the other countries involved. The Ottomans, it was their territory, but they were poorly trained and, and equipped. Russia should have crushed the invaders. But Nicholas actually had a thought that building railroads were actually going to disturb Russian society. And modernization like that was wrong for the people of Russia. And that led to the eventual, you know, surrender of Russia. And after Nicholas, they say, died of a broken heart when he realized that he had lost the war. So now you have this war he basically gave up living. Uh, he got sick, uh, a flu, and then just died. And Alexander realized, hey, i got to stop this war. And we've got to make some concessions and, and get out of it. But it was their land. So this you know, kind of leads to our present-day situation with the Crimean uh, Peninsula. Yeah, it seems to me that the Crimean War of the mid-19th century is one of those extraordinarily important moments in history that people just tend to not talk about. I mean, something that that I like to say is you can't really understand today without understanding the 20th century. You can't understand the 20th century without understanding World War I. You can't really understand World War I unless you understand what happened between the end of the Napoleonic Wars in the early 19th century to the early 20th century. And to sketch just a very high-level outline, basically these four powers... Uh, in the West, well, in, in all of Europe, the UK, Austria, Prussia, Russia formed the Quadruple Alliance, which was to contain France, and that was very much based on just balance of power, keeping them together. And then the Triple Alliance that Eric mentioned was this idea of shared legitimacy uh, that you talked about some, which was you know basically the three monarchies of Prussia, Austria, Russia, binding together to basically keep down any any sort of potential Republican revolutionary sentiment that might crop up. And I think at a very, very high level, the story of the 19th century in Europe is this balance of power, this balance of forces gradually breaking apart. And if you hear people say, you know, the, the dissolution of the balance of power is what led to World War I, it was this set of alliances that was formed after the end of Napoleonic Wars, the Congress of Vienna. That is what began to dissolve. And when you talk about the Crimean War, that's kind of one of the tipping points, right? Because that's when Austria really felt threatened by Russia moving down to the Balkans. And finally, they, they kind of issued an ultimatum and said, OK, if you keep going at it, we're actually going to turn against you. And that ripped apart the Triple Alliance. And that kind of broke this sentiment of solidarity between those three monarchies. And then once you talk about that, you have to talk about the emancipation of the serfs in Russia, Certainly that Scotchpaul in her book, uh, States and Social Revolution, talks about as one of the key turning points that led up to the Bolshevik Revolution. So if these are these really important turning points in this long-term trend, Mark, do you think that there are aspects inherent in either the Russian system or the Russian culture that led to the dissolution of these balances of power? Um, would something different have happened if Austria didn't push back against Russia, or, or was this sort of dissolution into World War One inevitable? That's a great question, and I think there was almost an inevitability because of the geopolitics. Part of it is religion. When you look at the Balkans, so much of it is Orthodox, like Serbia. You know, there was a great camaraderie between the two 
countries. The uh, and this is where my my family went to after the Russian Revolution was to Serbia. That my mom grew up in Yugoslavia, and they got there in about 1918, 1919. There was anger amongst all the different combatants. There were so many alliances that were broken. And when you talk monarchs, you also have to talk about personal egos. So this is where I distance myself from what Tolstoy said, that it was the common people and these things that were going to do it. I think a lot of it had to do with these egotistical monarchs and leaders of these countries. Uh, Alexander, part of his big thing was this ego and hatred of Napoleon after a while, because one of the French uh, nobles was executed by Napoleon and Alexander sends a nasty letter to him and Napoleon replies, hey, what about your dad? You know, you never punished the people who murdered your father. Why are you, you know, poking around in my business? Why don't you just shut up about that? And that really enraged Alexander. Uh, Nicholas was like that. He was very, you know, egotistical about these things, telling people, oh, you can't tell me what to do. I'm the leader of Russia. God made me this ruler. So there was a lot of these egotistical things. And, you know, most of these czars wanted to free the serfs way before. I mean, Catherine the Great wanted to free the serfs in the 1700s, but realized that there was a lot of, you know, resentment toward it. And then there was the enormous Pugachev rebellion, and she stopped at it there. Uh, that was kind of one of the first real rebellions when we look at the Russian Revolution, the Pugachev Rebellion where the peasants rose up, killed their landowners, and there were millions of people, and they started marching north. They were a ragtag band, and they were eventually destroyed, and Pugachev was uh, drawn and quartered. <laughs> and, uh, but it gave that resentment in the, within the, the peasantry. So when Alexander II finally freed the serfs, it wasn't like a freedom when the Americans, after the American Civil War went, all the slaves were freed. This one was freedom with a price, and a price that these former serfs could not afford. They were saying, oh, we'll give you freedom, we'll give you a little land, but you got to pay us, and we're going to give you, you know, 49 years to pay this off, and with an exorbitant amount. And so they really didn't feel like they were really free, and there was a lot of resentment there, so there was more bubbling of revolution. That this czar's the great liberator, the supposed liberal Alexander II really wasn't very liberal. He was very conservative and gave freedom in word only, but still kept these people to the uh, tied to the soil that they were living in. Uh, so we have a real problem there, bubbling up of anger amongst the Russians. And when Alexander III comes around, he was more reactionary than his father the second because of his father being assassinated and they had something like seven assassination attempts finally they killed him and now Alexander just said we're just going to squash everything we're going to put a damper on all revolutionary thought all new ideas we're going to force russification on everyone the Poles the Ukrainians it didn't matter everybody was going to be russified and you were going to you know stand under my thumb and when you do that it's kind of like grounding a teenager and saying you can't go out and they get angry over time and they are just going to rebel and that's what happened and I think that the Russian Revolution the wars 
of World War One started from all this anger and bubbling up and the egos of these monarchs. So World War One, as our listeners probably know, is sort of the last straw for the Russian peasantry. And what's, what I find interesting about World War One, of course, is that typically when Russia is facing really hard times, especially from the outside, even when it is losing, there is this sense of unity or at least a tolerance of suffering with unity that I think does really, or that I understand really affects the Russian psyche, but it seems to have broken down in World War One. So Russia gets involved in World War One to protect the Balkans, and I'm a little interested in what may have been going through the leadership's head because it feels inevitable, but there was clearly some decision-making. And then Russia surrenders, actually, to Germany and gives away huge swaths of territory to the West that are highly populous, and then the revolution happens. So... Mark, how do, you, how do you see that playing out? What got Russia involved? And uh, how, did the, how did the surrender of the war itself sort of finally kick off the revolution? Well, we have to go back a little bit. Uh, Nicholas II now becomes czar after his father died at 49. And Nicholas was possibly the most unprepared person who could have ever taken over uh, a nation as large as Russia. And there was just one little disaster after another when he was inaugurated and crowned. Uh, there was the Kadinka tragedy where thousands of people were trampled to death. And then instead of going to the site where the people were dying and injured, uh, he decides to go to a ball and dance the night away. Even though he wanted to do it, his uncles didn't want him to. So they finally convinced him. So the people were going, wait a minute. You know, there's a few thousand people here who have been badly injured and killed. And where's our benevolent father? Well, he's not there. Then we go a little further on, and then we have the Russo-Japanese War, where the Russians send their navy seven or 8,000 miles to go get destroyed by the Japanese navy. And this was a great embarrassment to the Russians. And they're like, oh, why did we do this? You know, what's going on here? And it's another incident of, hey, you know, we're, we're sacrificing all our men and nothing's coming of it. And then we have the uh, Father Gapone with thousands of people in 1905 coming to talk to the Tsar and petition him. And they're carrying banners with the picture of the Tsar as an icon. And just, you know, they revered the man. And then you have the kickback where the police start shooting at this crowd and killing the peasants. And the people were starting to go, wait a minute, is this our father anymore? Is this czar no longer caring about us? He's just caring to stay in power. And then we have this battle, World War II comes about, as it happens in Serbia, which is, Russian, which is an Orthodox country. And we have the Russians have to go in and protect them. The Germans counter with that, the Austrian Hungary, Hungarians. And then we have a all-out war. What was bad about it is the Russians were totally unprepared to fight. There were instances where the men were sent into battle with no weapons. They would pick up the guns of the men in front of them that were killed. And that was the only weaponry they had. And there was mass desertions because of it. And these men would come back to Russia going, we're just getting slaughtered. Uh, we don't have weapons to fight with. We're dying. There's famine. There's no way of... Uh, 
aiding and feeding these men. And then Nicholas makes one of the most horrendous decisions. He decides to become the commander-in-chief, despite all his generals saying, don't do it, because if you lose, it's on your shoulder, and you're going to lose your crown. And he wouldn't listen to them. And then finally, the Russian people had enough. Millions upon millions of Russian men were being killed, and they saw no reason for it. And finally, the Tsar had to advocate, and then you have the provisional government coming in. And then the Germans, in all their wisdom, said, you know, this guy Lenin over here, he's in our territory. Uh, why don't we send him into Russia and see if he can you know, start a revolution and take them out of the picture? So if we don't have to worry about our eastern front. We could send all our troops to the western front and win this war. So they sent Lenin in. He got into... Uh, St. Petersburg in early 1917 and gradually started building up this little revolution and that in November they were able to take over. They then tried to develop a peace treaty with the Germans and the Germans played real hardball. They said, you know what, uh, you were going to give up lots of territory, you're going to quit the war, otherwise we're going to invade. And then on February 18th of 1918 they did and it was uh, Operation Faustschlag, which means fist punch. And they went in for 11 days and there was no resistance. And they just marched through. And Trotsky was was one of the negotiators with Kamenev. And he said, we need to, you know, could you guys please just like stop the war? And that's it. And the Germans went, no, we want all this land. We want Poland. We want parts of Ukraine. We're going to take it. Otherwise, we're going to continue marching. And, and Lenin said, that's it. Uh, we've got enough problems over here trying to hold our own uh, with the Russian Civil War going on. Uh, let's sign the treaty, give up the land. We'll get it back later. So then we start into the uh, Russian Civil War, which I am now about to do a podcast series on. This is one of the most devastating events in human history. Uh, anywhere from 7 to 12 million Russians were killed in this civil war. When you look at the American Civil War, which was brutal, there were 600,000. Here we're talking upwards you know, of 12 million people and famines that were caused by it that were just absolutely gut-wrenching. So we see that this revolution comes about. It lasts a few years. And now we have a devastated Russian countryside. Uh, Germany had lost the war, so they gained much of the land back, but also... You have people in Ukraine wanting to become Ukrainians and not Russians anymore. You have all those different Baltic states. They all want to, you know, Finland, which was under the Russian thumb, they wanted their freedom. So this whole country was starting to split apart at that time. So as we move into the 20th century now, I, I kind of want to leave behind one thought on World War One, which is one of the more interesting things about it to me, which is, you know, if you know about the start of World War One, you're probably familiar with this this plan called the Schlieffen Plan, which is Germany was surrounded by Russia and France. So, in order to have any sort of chance, they had to launch an attack against France first, knock them out of the war, and then divert their resources back towards Russia. And because Russia wasn't as industrialized, the, their mobilization rate would be slower, and they'd be able to do that. But if you recall. We were talking about all these alliances in the early 19th century, and France and Russia were like mortal enemies for a long time. 
And over the course of the 19th century, this gradually shifted. And I think the story of how those alliances shifted from Russia, Germany to Russia and France is very, very interesting. There's a book that George Kennan wrote called The the Decline of Bismarck's Empire, the something like Franco-Russian relations from 1875 to 1890, which is like the most boring academic title that you could possibly imagine. <laughs> but it is this shift of the alliance structures that actually eventually led to, you know, this this powder keg that was ready to erupt that forced Germany to take this action. Yeah, you know, the, it, and it's very odd because when you look at who the Russian czars were, they were mostly German, but they were also related to the British. Uh, George III, if you look at pictures of George III and Nicholas II, they look like twins. They're very, you know, Nicholas II's wife was uh, related to Queen Victoria. There was a lot of this, you know, intermarriage, and they were, you know, allied. But there seemed to have been a growing resentment of the Rus- of the Germans by the Russian czars, even though they were n- mostly German, and they viewed them with a great deal of skepticism. And I think it's with Bismarck's time, they looked at their expansionist policies, and I think in- they were starting to get very nervous about being invaded again because of their history. They've had enough invasions. Here's the Germans becoming very militaristic on our western border. And the British are like, hey, you know, we're over here. We'll be on your side. And the French are like, we'll be on your side too. We'll protect you. And it gradually turned to see where this threat was. Before it was the French. Then it became the British during the Crimean War. And then it became the Prussians and Germans that were the biggest threats of invasion. So that's how a lot of this started changing. Right. And... You know, I, I mentioned this author, Theta Scotchpaul, uh, who wrote this book about revolutions, and we'll put a link up. It's a great book, but at a very high level, one of her, her hypotheses in this book is part of what leads to um, a revolution is a breakdown in this balancing structure between society. The Russian serfs had reasons to revolt for hundreds of years. So why did it happen when it happened? Well, it was because for all this time, the the Russian czar had the ability essentially to defend the landowners who the serfs wanted to kill because he had some degree of power or actually quite a great degree of power with the military. And in World War One, what happened is this just completely got destroyed. His ability to to wield force was obliterated by the war. And you know, you mentioned the the Japanese Russian War, and there were revolutionary stirrings then. But because the the Russian military wasn't completely destroyed in that war. The, the Tsar was able to maintain some degree of power. So now we're in 1917. World War One has completely just destroyed the Russian society, and the the Tsar no longer has the ability to defend the the nobility, the landlords, the serfs rise up, and the revolution happens. But as they say, the more the things change, the more the things stay the same. So you started talking about the Russian Civil War and this this interwar period and how terrible it was for everyone. And here everyone was thinking, oh, finally, these communists, they're really going to change something. We were going to get some people thinking about us for, for a change, and it just didn't happen. So, Mark, what? tell us a little bit about this transition period between 1917 and, if you want to say, 1937 or 1939 when we're getting to World War II. What, what happens in this time? Well, we have to also really understand who the Bolsheviks targeted as their allies. And it, they looked down at the peasants. They thought they were just stupid people 
Uh, they were ignorant, didn't have any idea about revolution, and it was the industrialization, the workers that they were looking at, the ones who were being, you know, in the factories. That's where their support came from. The majority of peasants in the 1918 elections voted for the uh, socialist revolutionaries, the SR, and the Bolsheviks got a very small portion of it. And as they were about to meet, and you know, they had this great uh, democracy now. The Bolsheviks went, well, sorry, nope, we're closing you down. We're the only party allowed. The hell with you. And so all these peasants who were voting for these SRs, sorry, uh, you're you're not in power. Uh, Bolsheviks were really disliked by a lot of people. They were not trusted at all, but they were able to get into power. Uh, you have Leon Trotsky, who was a great military mind, was able to defeat the whites. This is part of what I'm going to be going through in my podcast who were very disjointed. They had some monarchists, they had some anti-monarchists, but who were anti-Bolshevik. They were just a ragtag band of armies that were eventually destroyed. But Stalin looked at this, and he was really rising in the ranks. And Lenin had a great deal of trepidation about this man, and even said so in letters uh, that Stalin repressed, that he wanted him out. But when Lenin died and 1924 was too late. Stalin took over, and he was in, in the revolution and knew the peasants weren't on his side. And he started this process called collectivization. And it was basically to go back to what it was before. These people were now serfs again. They were tied to the land. They couldn't leave where they were. Otherwise, they would be shot. And he was more brutal than the czars ever were. And so basically, they became enslaved. And so the entire peasant agricultural society was banded together and they were put into these farms where they had to work and there were times when they actually had to give all of their produce all of the grains everything to the Russian government and it caused one of the great tragedies of human history which is the Holomodor in Ukraine where millions they don't even know how many people actually died of famine because they were not allowed to keep any of the food that they were growing. And if they were found even to have spoiled bits of food that they had saved, they would be shot. And they even had the children tell on their parents, and this is in the early 1930s, it was just a brutality against this agrarian peasantry that continued for decades afterwards. And Stalin you know, basically had... I'd say there would be 10 to 15 million people died of starvation and uh, being shot during this collectivization period in order to try to rebuild things. And then he devastated the military because many of the military generals were former czarist uh, military men and officers. So he was a very paranoid man. So anybody who would hint at being a rival to him or could have given a, you know, revolutionary thought to get rid of him was executed. So you had the great purges in 1936, 37, 38, where everybody was considered a potential rival and a uh, wrecker, as they called them, and would, you know, would do terrible things to the, to the people. And they were the cause of all the suffering, not good old Papa Joe, as he called himself. So we now have purges of the military where I would say somewhere of 80 to 90% of the officer corps were 
either killed or exiled to Siberia. And there we are in 1938, and we have some other guy in Germany rattling his saber, you know, Adolf Hitler. So one of the things I'm, the two things I'm really curious about with World War II, and I'm tempted to say we don't need to talk too much about the events of it, because I suspect it's probably the most the most familiar war to probably everyone listening. You know, so obviously Germany forms an initial alliance with Russia to keep them out of the out of the game, and then decides, eh, we're going to invade them anyway, which they had planned to do the whole time. And it's even, I mean, we're talking about all this devastation, it is even more devastating for Russia than everything else before it. Possibly, I think something on the order of 20 million killed, Mark, correct me if I'm wrong. Could be up to 30, 40, even. It's just an insane number. I mean, imagine the fact that Russia has... A hundred something million people in it still blows my mind, given all of this. So, uh, devastation to Russia on a scale unprecedented, even for Russia, the, you know, sort of the capital of misery. And the two questions I have are one, given that, how did Russia possibly come back from that to become, to end the Second World War as a superpower? I mean, just as the, the number two. And not by a whole lot in the whole world compared to the United States. And the other question I have, and possibly this is due to the purges, but given how badly World War I went and the slaughter going on there and how much that drove resentment for the leadership that, you know, sparked the revolution, how did the leadership in the Second World War avoid the same thing? Well, one was propaganda. They made it seem like Joe Stalin was protecting him against all these foreign influences and that all these people that they had killed were actually bad people and that the ones who were remaining were the good guys. They were the ones who were subjugated all these years. It was getting rid of all the czarist spies that were still in the government. So they did a marvelous job of propaganda. If you get to see the posters and the newspaper articles, Joseph Goebbels had nothing on the Soviet a propaganda machine. They were amazing. They got the people to really believe it. And when the Germans invaded, that was the final straw. Germany's coming back again. They're they're coming in. They're invading us. We've got to protect our our country. And they just rose up as a people and said, "We're not going to take it anymore. We are going to fight. We're going to do whatever it takes to rebuild." And they just stood up and it was amazing to see and to read about how they were they were glorifying these women who were uh, fighter pilots and uh, snipers and they would show how great they were in protecting and giving up their lives and one very important moment was when one of Stalin's sons was captured and the Germans said well you give us back a couple of generals and we'll give you back your son and Stalin's like no I'm not giving you any generals for that guy I don't care if he's my son or not. And so the people went, wow, he's sacrificing sacrificing his own children in the name of the greater good. So it was another propaganda moment. And then after the war, in order to rebuild, they took a lot from those, the, uh, the Poles. They took a lot from the East Germans. They took a lot of their factories and brought them back to Russia. So they would look at all their sphere and all their Cold War territories and took a lot of their resources, their factories, their people, their expertise, 
and brought it back to Russia. They captured a lot of German scientists. Uh, the Americans got most of the, the big-time ones because they didn't want to be captured by the Russians. But the Russians got their side. And there was also still this communist movement around the world. You have to remember, there were a lot of communists in the United States. And we have the Rosenbergs and their spy routine. So when you know Truman smiles at, uh, I think it was Potsdam, and says, you know, we got the bomb. And uh, Stalin's like, yeah, right, I know. Because they knew already. And they were already, you know, uh, Lavrenti Beria, who was the head of their uh, KGB, was already getting his fingers into things. And they said, we're going to steal the the uh, plans for the nuclear bombs, which they got very quickly. And they were able to start building it. And they really focused on military, which was eventually to cause their downfall. They spent enormous amounts of their GDP on the military. You know, we look at our military in, in the United States and say, well, it's, you know, enormous. It spends way too much money, but it's basically about three to six percent of our GDP. And Russia was upwards of 35 percent. So while they might not have had as much of an economic clout, they put so much more into the military that it was able to keep even with the United States. Problem was, you can't sustain a 35% a year uh, spending on the military. And it, it's really interesting that most of the Russian leadership did not know how much they were spending. If you read Gorbachev's autobiography, he was not given the real numbers of what was being spent in their military until the end of his time. In the late 18, 1980s, around 89, 90, when he said, oh, my God, did we spend a lot of money and we're broke. There was no more money there. Uh, now, this goes to this whole Reagan thing of, you know, Star Wars. And, you know, he spent the Russians into uh, oblivion. They were already spent into oblivion. In 1976 at Queens College, my professor, Dr. Average, said, Russia will, the Soviet Union will cease to exist within the next 20 to 25 years. And we all laughed. We said, you've got to be kidding me. And he said, nope, it can't sustain itself. There's no more, you know, they've spent every penny they have. They were actually taking the money from ordinary citizen savings accounts and basically gutting the entire economy just to keep up with the Americans. And they had been doing this since the time of Stalin. By the time Reagan came in, they were already out of money, but they had put everything into it to make themselves look as powerful so that the Americans would look at them and say, there are equals. And it goes back to the Mongols, you know, it goes back to those invasions. They were always looked down upon. They're the Orientals, they're the weak guys. You know, we can beat them. They were tired of it. And so they had to put everything up there to look strong. And then Soviet Union collapses and now we had you know, a disjointed Russia and all its satellite countries around it. We keep coming back to this this really critical concept of fear of invasion and tidying up the discussion of World War II. There's this sort of idea, certainly in the certainly in the United States, that you know, war went on for a little while, then D-Day happened, we came in, we saved everything, America, America, right? But it completely misses the point that. Uh, Russia just expended an incredible number of lives and, and blood fighting in Stalingrad, pushing the Germans back. And by the time that 
the United States invaded Europe, the, the balance of forces had kind of changed already. So after the war ended, Russia, what did they do? Well, again, fear of these invasions. They tried to put as much cushion, as much space as they possibly could between Western Europe and Russia. And this kind of set up the tensions that lasted throughout the Cold War between uh, the Warsaw Pact countries and NATO, which was the Western military alliance. So as we talk about the downfall of the Soviet Union that happened in the late 80s, early 90s, you know, that's still 50 years. And yet you can talk to a lot of folks, certainly your your former professor, who could kind of see this coming based on the economic trends, right? So why do you think they were able to hold on for so long when really the long-term fundamentals were against them? They were spending in all the wrong areas. And even though they had set up some cushion for themselves, which they ultimately lost when the Soviet Union fell, which is the cause of a lot of tensions today, how were they able to hold on for so long, for so many decades? Three-letter word, oil. Oil saved the Soviet Union. And if we remember back in the early 70s, around 72, there was the Arab oil embargo, which caused the price of oil to skyrocket. Well, huh, Russia has more oil than the entire Middle East. And they supplied a lot of it. And they were able to get a lot of cold, hard cash coming into their coffers from all this oil. And as oil prices rise, the Russian economy does fabulous. So they were able to keep themselves going because they have more resources than any other country in the world. Their problem is a lot of the resources are really far away and it's hard for them to transport it in and expensive. But when the price goes up enough, then that expensive transport becomes less of a problem and they get more profit. And so oil was able to really supply them with all the uh, money they needed until oil prices started dropping. And they did so under first Bush and Reagan. There were some price drops and stabilizations. And that, I think, was one of the real reasons why their economy collapsed. And when we look at to present day, when oil goes up, boy, that Russian economy is doing fabulous. When oil was over $100 a barrel, man, was the Russian economy, you know, doing fabulous. When it started sliding back into the 20s, you know, Putin was forced to, you know, fire large portions of the government because they had no more money. So really, oil is one of the driving forces of that country and their economics to this day. So I have what I think is one more question to round off Russian history and set us up for our next episode on Reconsider, which is Russia's geopolitical position today. So... As we can see from the history of Russia since millennia ago, their biggest risk and an ongoing and repeated risk for them that has caused incredible devastation has been invasions from the land because they have such a vulnerable plains to their west and also when the Mongols were strong to the east. The... Russian strategy for beating this has been a very brutal, on its own people, deep defense strategy and scorched earth. Obviously, in the Cold War, a big part of holding the Warsaw Pact was to create enough buffer space to be able to do that very deep defense strategy with other people's territory, which is a whole lot more comfortable to do. Russia today has is sort of surrounded by NATO. You know, they're up on the edges of it with 
the Baltics with Poland, Bulgaria, etc. And oil is low. You said in 1976, or you said that your professor in 1976 said that even with all its buffer territory, with a you know a, a struggling economy and a lot of spend on the military, Russia's or the Soviet Union was in trouble. It's going to collapse today. Russia has. Uh, if you ignore purchasing power parity, about a 14th the economy of the United States. It's less than $2 trillion. Uh, Oil is low. They're under sanctions. What do you, Mark, think is in Russia's future? Well, one of the things that Putin, I believe, is trying to do is destabilize the world. Uh, the more you destabilize it, the more oil prices go up. Uh, his country is one run by oligarchs who are very wealthy and you know, they're, they're looking out for themselves. The Russian people be damned, in, in my opinion. Uh, I think, you know, he's got to keep the people somewhat happy. So he's got to get things going. But destabilization, when we ever see this, we know that when the world is in turmoil, commodities go up. And that really benefits the Russians. They have their gold. They have their silver. They have all their different minerals. But they need the prices to go up. They need to get these going. And this is why I think they did the Crimean invasion, why they did the Ukrainian invasion is because they need to destabilize things. And then we have this last election here in the United States where I believe part of it was this destabilization, trying to get people nervous, get them worried about things and start hiking prices because it's going to go. And it it's to an extent working. Prices are starting to stabilize. They're going up. Uh, I think he's going to continue to do this. And I think it's because of this paranoia. We, you know, NATO puts missile bases in Poland. That's if, you know, somebody had put missile bases in, in Tijuana. Uh, look what we did when they put them in Cuba back in the 60s. You know, we, we fought hard. We were upset with that. Think about how the Russians are feeling right now. And they're a little angry. They're tired of being looked down upon. They're tired of having somebody on their border that's threatening them, even though the U.S. keeps on claiming, well, these are defensive missiles in case you attack us. Well, that's what the Germans said you know, in 1939 with their treaty. There's this feeling, and I think it's just going to continue until somehow we begin to look at the Russians and understand how they're feeling. That's why my book, you know, finished writing and have a manuscript on it. It's to say we have to understand that if we continue to threaten them, they're going to be paranoid. They've been invaded enough times. And so maybe we have a different tact and start working with them. And, you know, the sanctions are all well and good because we think that, you know, Putin's a bad guy, but is he really, or is he just really looking out for the self-interest of the, of the Russians? And Winston Churchill in his comments where he says, you know, the Russians are a mystery wrapped in an enigma and all that. If you read the entire comment he made on the BBC, he makes the comment that Russian self-interest is what drives their foreign policy. And that's the part that everybody forgets. Churchill knew it. He says, it's their self-interest. They're concerned about these things. And we tend to think, well, you know, they should be good players in this world. But we in the, in the West do the same thing. We look for our self-interests, but we don't want to give it to them. And I think this is one of our great tragedies and causing so much of this tension between our countries is that we want them to be magnanimous and, you know, not worry about things that will all be okay. 
one we should know that we've given them that in the past and they haven't you know we haven't responded in kind so that's where i think we're at right now and if if the point of the episode was to begin to see the world through the through the eyes of the russians i think that's you know a good way to sort of reframe it and summarize it you know you mentioned the the importance of oil and resources for the russians and how putin right now really essentially might be trying to destabilize the world Maybe as a teaser for our next episode, for our listeners, you know, we've mentioned George Friedman before, one of our favorite authors, and what he anticipates is as Russia continues to attempt to destabilize the world, there is going to be this magnetism between Russia and Germany again, because Russia has something that Germany needs and is dependent on, which is gas and oil, and Germany has something that Russia needs, which, as we've talked about, this this sense of inferiority, the inability to develop technological capabilities Germany has all that. So all of a sudden, there is this overlap of mutual interests. So we'll probably get into that a little bit no, more on the next episode. That's a fascinating thought because, you know, my other side of my family is German, uh, first American-born, and we came from, you know, Germany after the war. And I can see that as happening. You know, there will be mutual self-interest, but that's going to take some time. You know, there's still a lot of animosity between the two of them you know is only in some people's lifetimes that that devastating war between the two countries occurred so there's still that feeling but once those die out when the last survivors and the last people who fought in that great patriotic war as they call it in russia we may see a change and uh you know that's a interesting proposition and one that you know should make a few americans nervous but I think it could actually benefit the world at one point. So we have this very broad brush of Russia's history, and it's sort of woefully incomplete. It's, I mean, that's why Mark has a whole podcast dedicated to this, and it's huge. So if you get into it, uh, just beware the addiction factor, because it's really good, it's really interesting, and there's a whole lot to dive into there. So if any of you listening have found this interesting, have found it important to understand Russia better as we go forward. I cannot recommend Mark's podcast enough. It is called Russian Rulers History. Mark, how can our listeners find you? Website, Twitter, etc. Well, so RussianRulersHistory.com is uh, one of my sites, a blog site, but also a pod hoster is the one where you can find it uh, in Russian Rulers History, a pod hoster and you can find us on Facebook. We have about 1,800 followers there and some remarkable people that you know are in Russia right now and they share an amazing amount of information. That's one of the great sites to come to is on Facebook. It's just we have one gal in St. Petersburg who posts pictures from that era and her mom's actually a docent at one of the museums at the Hermitage. So that's a great place. Uh, and then... You know, just iTunes, you can find the podcast. I have well over, it's close to 205 episodes total. Numbered, I have 182, but I have a lot of short ones where I cover specific topics that were not episodic in nature. So there's lots of information. And what's interesting is I have a number of professors of Russian history around the world who have their students listen to the podcast as kind of an adjunct to their studies. So that's kind of fun as well. And do you have a place that we can find your upcoming Civil War podcast yet? Uh, that's going to be at the, uh, you know, find them on iTunes and, and uh, any one of the other podcast 
catchers, just look up Russian rulers history and you'll be able to get it. And uh, we're going to put the first one on the Civil War starting this next weekend. And it'll be just looking at some of the commanders and combatants first to lay kind of the groundwork to it. I think it's going to be about a 10 to 12 part series because of the enormity of the war. We're just going to look at who were the players involved in it first and finding out where they came from. So I do a, uh, an update usually every other week on it. So for those listening, uh, this episode will actually be posted after uh, the weekend that Mark starts posting the first episode on the Russian Civil War. So that is out now. Uh, and definitely go check it out. I'm going to go listen to it as soon as it comes up. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. So now that we know a little bit more about Russia, hopefully this has changed how we see the Russian, European, and Russian rest of the world dynamic, because um, so, we understand Russia's perspective a little bit more, which tends to get put to the back burner when we're talking about how Russia's relating to the world. So as always, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Undaria Algae Body Oil and Undaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.